0: Well, good morning. You've probably all seen the bumper sticker that reads, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. This morning, I want to ask whether that's really true. I'm okay with the first part of the sentence, Christians aren't perfect. I mean, it's it's evident that when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't remove from us any every possibility of sinning. It doesn't uh, make us no longer susceptible to all the frailties and flaws of Of fallen human nature. And I'm fine with the last part of the sentence Christians are forgiven. In fact, that is the chief characteristic of a Christian, a personal assurance of having been forgiven by God of all of our sins. And my problem is just with the word in between, the the one little word, just. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiveness, forgiven. And, And this morning I want to ask is forgiveness the only characteristic of a Christian? Is is the only difference between a believer and a non-believer the fact that the believer is forgiven and the unbeliever isn't? Now, this morning we want to prepare our hearts in the next few minutes for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and it provides us a perfect opportunity to reflect on these things. And uh, at his table, the Lord always seeks to impress upon us the blessings that we have in Christ. What is it we possess if we are Christians, if we are people who have trusted in Christ? And he also seeks to impress upon us not only our blessings, but our responsibilities. Now, sometimes, you know, at the end of a movie or a book, there's what's called an epilogue. At the end of the movie, it's a few sentences that are shown on the screen, and an epilogue is meant, uh, after the story's over, it's meant to kind of give you some, tie up some loose ends, give you some information that you might have wondered about in the story. And that's what this whole chapter is. It's really an epilogue. Most interpreters uh, acknowledge that the book proper ends at the end of chapter 20 with a very clear statement. And chapter 21 is an addendum that answers a couple of important questions that the reader might have. One of them, the chief one, is what happened to the Apostle Peter. After all, Peter was the one who denied the Lord. And uh, after his denial, there's no uh, indication of what happened to that. Peter shows up a couple of times, but there's no words about that. There's no explanation. and This chapter answers the question, what happened to Peter. And in this passage, Peter, uh, Jesus, evidently forgives Peter, but he does more than that. He forgives him, and he recommissions him to do what he initially was uh, asked to do, and he restores him to the very place of being a disciple. We want to think about those three things today because I think they tell us something about how we should come this morning. What is the attitude we should have when we approach and participate in the Lord's table. Now, the first thing this passage tells us, and Peter's experience tells us, first and foremost, it reminds us that we are forgiven people. We are forgiven people. The table always speaks to us of forgiveness. It's to be the first thing a person recognizes when he or she sits and sees that the elements are laid out for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus died for our sins. That's what's being shown here and being experienced as we participate. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at a passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and uh, it would be helpful for us to revisit the basic idea of that passage because what we want to think about here in chapter 21 has a lot to do with it. In that passage, you remember Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and uh, in seeking to help Peter understand what the symbolism was, what he was picturing by washing their feet, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And and the idea was that when a person takes a bath, or we would say a shower, it prepares you for the activities of the whole day. You, You are made clean for the whole day. And in the same way, God's initial forgiveness of a person's sins when they come to trust in Christ, their experience of salvation is a spiritual bath, in which God prepares us for every eventuality throughout the journey of our Christian life. He deals with all of our sins and qualifies us for relationship with Him forever, and our sins are forgiven forever. But Jesus did say, "The one who has bathed, the one who has had a bath, he doesn't need to wash." Like as you go through the day, if you get your hands dirty, you don't have to wash. You don't have to wash your whole body. You don't have to take a shower again. You just wash your hands. And in this case, He uses the image of. Uh, washing the feet. Now, that's not culturally common for us, but we can easily understand it. Walking through dirty streets when you're wearing sandals, your feet would easily pick up the soil and stains of uh, the refuse that you would have to walk through, and the dust and the dirt and the mire and all of those things. And so, when a person entered another person's home, they would wash. While that's not customary for us, we understand it, and it perfectly pictures the idea that as we walk on the journey of the Christian life, even though we have been initially cleansed and forgiven, we will pick up the stain of sin. And Jesus provides for us a way to deal with that, and that is the washing of the feet. And it's a picture of God's provision based on the death of Christ to um, cleanse us on a regular basis from the ongoing stain of sin in our earthly pilgrimage. As we confess our sins, we're told in 1 John, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, concerning Peter, who was the one who questioned Jesus about the foot washing, he had experienced the initial forgiveness. Jesus said to him in that same passage, you are clean, having talked about the bath. The one who has bathed does not need to bathe, you know, uh, to wash except for his feet. And he says... You are clean. So Peter, he was saying, you have had the bath of salvation, but now I'm washing your feet as an image of taking care of the ongoing stain of sin. And that's what this passage is about when we come to chapter 21. Peter had sinned against Jesus in a a most shameful way. It says in the, three, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that when Peter was questioned, Uh, well, after Jesus was betrayed and arrested, when when Peter was questioned, he denied even knowing Jesus. But it's interesting, in the Gospel of John, when the same person questions him, she says to him, you are not one of his disciples, are you? And he says, I am not. In the Gospel of John, he denied his discipleship. And so this is the passage where Jesus... Uh, three times, in parallel with the three times that Peter denied his uh, knowing Christ and being a disciple, he he asked him three questions. I have to think of it as Jesus was hounded through the streets of Jerusalem carrying his cross. The first time Peter was asked a question by a serving girl of the high priest, a servant, he denied the Lord. And so, We open up in the passage that was read for us a few moments ago, after a breakfast in which Jesus appeared to the disciples. And in the presence of the others who were there, there were seven listed uh, uh, being present on this day, Jesus asked Peter these three questions. He, He asked him three times, do you love me? And that was a searching and heartbreaking question to Peter and uh, his answer is important, but I want you to note, in this passage, there are a number of details that have led interpreters in a lot of different directions, and uh, so we need to dig a little bit deeper in order to understand those things. First, I want you to look at the passage and note, Jesus asked three times, do you love me? But the first time that he asks that question, in verse 15, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Now, some interpreters have thought, he's asking Peter, do you love me more than these fishing implements that are around us? And in the context, they would say, if you read the whole chapter, beginning in the first verse, these seven disciples, after the Feast of Passover was completed in Jerusalem, returned up to their hometown in Capernaum, where Peter initially owned a fishing business, with the father of James and John, two of the other apostles, a man named Zebedee. He called this fishing business, and they returned up there, and someone said, let's go fishing, and so they went out fishing that night. And uh, the idea is that he was returning to his original occupation, and Jesus was saying to him, do you love me and my service more than you love the occupation of fishing? And while that would make sense in the context it doesn't really match what we know about Peter. First of all, there's nothing in the Gospels that says anything about Peter enjoying his occupation particularly. It was what he did to support himself, but there's no sense that this was something he really wanted to do. And also in the passage, there's no sense that when they go fishing, they're doing anything other than deciding to take up some time. There's no indication they're going back to fishing, but it... it, it, what we know about Peter goes in a different direction. What we know about him is very clear. He was a big, and by the way, that idea that he was big, he's called the big fisherman by people often, uh, that he was big comes from this passage earlier on where they, they have this miraculous catch of fish in their net, 153 fish. And it says that Peter went and lifted the net with 153 fish out and brought it to shore. Well, that would take a great deal of strength. And He's pictured as a large person, but he's not only uh, a big man, but he's brash, and he's an outgoing fellow, and he's lovable. He's the kind of person who loves people, and they love him back. He's a natural leader. Now, he had all of the qualities of that kind of person on one hand. He was expansive in his love for people he was committed to. If he was committed to you and you were committed to him, you knew his affection for you and his loyalty was very deep. On the other hand, he was also one of those people who, who liked to talk and oftentimes he spoke up when he should have shut up. And that, that's very evident in Scripture. But not only is that true, he was a bragger. I mean, he's constantly talking about how his uh, attainments were going to be greater than the others and things like that. And so for Jesus to say to him, do you love me more than fishing, wouldn't have made a lot of sense, but for Jesus to say to him, Peter, do you love me more than these other men that are sitting here? Do you love me more than these? Makes perfect sense, because Peter often asserted that his love for Jesus was greater than the others. For example, at the Last Supper, uh, Luke tells us, that Jesus said after the supper, as they were talking, he said to Peter, Satan is about to test you very deeply, and I am praying for you that your faith will not fail. Now, if you heard that from the Lord, you might want to ponder how would you respond if Jesus said that. Here's how Peter responded. He said, um, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Like, he, he wasn't uh, moved by the fact that Jesus himself was uncertain of his staying power. He was certain of it. It's recorded in Matthew and Mark that at the same point, he said, even though they, the other disciples, even though they all fall away, I will never fall away. What happens is Jesus immediately predicts, you will deny me three times. And after Jesus says that, Peter says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Now, What that's showing us is that if there's anything we know about the Apostle Peter, it's that he was very confident, overly confident, that his love for Jesus and his commitment to Jesus exceeded uh, that of the other followers around him. He believed that he had all the resources inside of him to do whatever he was called upon to do, and he was the kind of leader who had probably done that in life. And uh, the problem is, just as pride goes before a fall, Peter's boasts were shown to be empty the first time after the betrayal of Jesus that a servant girl asked him a question. So Jesus says to him, do you love me more than these other men love me? Something Peter had often asserted. And Peter, I want you to note in his answer, affirms his love, but he he no longer compares himself to other people. And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. In other words, you are aware of the true nature of my love that I feel inside myself for you, and it's true strength. Now, another difficulty in the passage is the fact that in the question, do you love me, and in Peter's answer, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, two different words for love are used. Uh, Twice, Jesus uses uh, the word agape, which you may have heard before, and it is used sometimes in the New Testament to refer to God's love, other-centered, sacrificial love. And twice in the passage, or all three times actually, in Peter's answer, he uses a different word when he answers, yes, Lord, I love you. He uses uh, the word related to philos, which means brotherly love. We get the city of Philadelphia from it. And affection for other people. And many have made... Uh, a lot out of the fact of these two different words for love, and so I did some spade work this week trying to figure that out. And what I came to is that it doesn't seem to be making that point in the passage. And here's why. Even though it's true those words are used a bit differently in a few contexts in the New Testament, generally in the Greek that was spoken at the time of Jesus, those were synonyms. They were used interchangeably, and it just seems they're being used variably. But also, even if the writer meant, if John meant to communicate something about different kinds of love, the passage doesn't really clarify what it means. The third time Jesus asked the question, he asked it using the word philos, the same word that Peter uses. So I don't think that the the different words for love are significant in this passage. And and then I want you to note, the third time, Peter responds slightly differently than the other times. Each time Jesus says, do you love me? And, And Peter says, uh, yes, I love you. But the third time it says he was grieved and he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So he adds the word, you know everything. And again, what Peter seems to be acknowledging is you alone have true insight into a person's character. You alone have an understanding of what we are capable of handling. I thought that I had that myself, but I didn't have it. Now, This is not forgiveness in the general sense. This is a specific, this is foot washing for Peter. This is, Peter is acknowledging his specific way in which he had failed the Lord. His bragging that his love and commitment was greater than everyone else's. And Jesus acknowledging that as well. It's not a model for forgiveness. We couldn't go through it and say, when you confess your sins, you need to do it this way because it was tailored to the specific kind of sin that the apostle Peter committed. Um, that's what God does in every one of our lives when he deals with our particular unique kind of sins, not just our sinfulness as we come to him. But it does remind us when we come to the table, we come as forgiven sinners. That is the first thing we acknowledge is that Jesus' body and his blood were, shed, were broken and shed for us. Jesus died for our sins. Now, we have to note a second thing. In the passage, Jesus doesn't just forgive Peter's sins. He also, in a sense, recommissions him. Recommissions him to do something he initially commissioned him to do. Um, Three times Jesus adds a command after the question and the answer he says three things. The first time, verse 15, he says to Peter, feed my lambs. The second time, he says, tend, or shepherd, my sheep. And the third time, he says, feed my sheep. So he never says exactly the same thing, but he says three different things. And again, interpreters have looked at that and pondered it. And some have uh, made much out of the fact that Jesus was saying three slightly different things to Uh, Peter, And that is possible, but the difficulty is interpreters come up with all kinds of different ideas. There's no consensus on what it would mean. So again, I'm not sure that the variation in words is uh, meant to be significant here. But uh, the obvious point is that Jesus is recommissioning Peter to do something. Peter may have thought, I lost my initial call. Peter had been appointed to be The one, along with the uh, group of apostles, who would be the foundation of the Christian movement. Later, the apostle Paul will say that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That is, they were the individuals prepared and commissioned individually by Christ to go out and to establish the first churches. And when they did that, they were initiating the Christian movement, setting in motion everything that would go on after them. And any church that has started has started because of those first churches. We are all continuations and building a superstructure on the foundation that was laid by the apostles. But in that, Peter was given a special place. He was uh, the chief among equals. He was the leader of the apostolic band. There's little question about that in the New Testament. And in this passage, uh, Jesus is recommissioning Peter to do what he originally appointed him to do. And that's what the book of Acts pictures. He goes out and he engages in the basic pastoral work of preaching the gospel, bringing people to faith in Christ, and forming churches. He goes out and he draws in the lost sheep brings them together, forms them into flocks, communities of people. That's what Peter was commissioned to do, and Jesus here is recommissioning him to do the same thing, to be a shepherd of God's people. Now, the commission that was given to Peter is very specific, right? I mean, no one here could fall into that category of being commissioned to initiate the Christian movement. However, his commission was just his individual part in the Great Commission, where Jesus said at the end of his life, before he ascended into heaven, go and make disciples of all nations. That's the commission given to the entire church, all of the people of God as a body. We are commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations. But what this reminds us is that within that, we are each given individual, specific, unique ways in which we are qualified to do that this week we went out uh, for administrative professionals day which we'd missed the week before we went out to lunch and as we were going out to get in the car a uh, woman ran out Karen Gordonera, a woman here and and she had uh, something to give to one of the staff she had been stuffing envelopes uh, to go out I think it was a student ministries mailing or something like that and and I just I thought well She is playing a small part, but an important part, in the carrying out of the Great Commission by doing that. At least that is her intention, and that is our intention. In the same way, every one of us has some unique ways in which we are qualified and called to participate in God's work. There are all kinds of ways in which we do that, but our responsibility is in part to figure out what that is in the fellowship of the church, and then to do that. So you have a role, too, and when we come to the table, we come, first of all, acknowledging that we are forgiven sinners. And second of all, we are also people who are sent on a mission and we're given a role to participate in. So we come as people who are commissioned to do something. And when we come to the table, our responsibility to live in that way ought to be something that we reflect on. And then lastly, I want you to note, the third thing that happens in this passage It's not something you would expect, but it was uniquely needed by Peter, and that is that Jesus uh, reasserts his basic call to discipleship. I want to just back up and note one thing about the entire chapter. In the beginning, these disciples go up to Capernaum. They decide to go fishing. They, They fish, but... Uh, Jesus, in the morning, though they don't know who he is, on the beach, he calls out to them about 100 yards, it says, and he says, have you caught anything? And they say no, and he says, throw the net on the right side of the boat, and they catch this this huge net full of, of fish, 153 fish, which is part of demonstrating this is an eyewitness account. And um, they come back in, and Peter or Jesus has prepared breakfast for them, and they eat breakfast with him, and what follows is this conversation with Peter. What's so fascinating is that event occurred not in exactly the same way, but it occurred at the beginning of Jesus' ministry on the same lake with some of the same people present, at least Peter. It's called the Miraculous Catch of Fish, and it's found in uh, Luke chapter 5. And and it says that they fished all night, didn't find anything. There were two boats at that point. And Jesus said, throw your net on this side. And, And they gathered in so many fish that the boats began to sink. And uh, Peter, when that happened, he threw himself at the feet of Jesus and said, Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And, and Jesus said, Follow me. From now on, you will catch fish. Or excuse me, you will catch people. Sorry. From now on, you will catch people. And uh, it, it, here's what's so interesting. What happened at the very beginning of Jesus or Peter's ministry when Jesus first called him to be a disciple, is replayed at the end after his failure. Same idea, catch a whole bunch of fish. Peter throws himself in the sea and swims to shore impetuously. And uh, Jesus feeds him and asks him these questions. But it's the next time that Jesus says to Peter, follow me. Follow me is used often in the Gospels, it's usually used as the initiation of a relationship of discipleship with Jesus. And for it to come at the very end of his ministry, after his death and his resurrection, is somewhat surprising, but he's reasserting to Peter the same thing he said to him at the beginning. I want you to put yourself in the place of a follower. Can I note a couple of other things about that? If you look at the passage right before he says, follow me, Jesus says a very mysterious thing to Peter that people have struggled with. Verse 18. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. It seems very obscure. John helps us In case we miss the significance of it, he adds a parenthetical sentence. Verse 19. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Now let me explain verse 18 to you, at least one uh, important thing. When it says, uh, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, that is proper, but it, it uses the word that we don't really use anymore. Older translations would say, you used to gird yourself. Now, to gird yourself is to put on a belt, and it did mean to get dressed, but in the ancient world, putting on a belt was the final step in dressing. We wear belts mostly to look nice, because our clothes are form-fitting. In the ancient world, they didn't wear form-fitting clothes. They wore very loose clothing, and when you finished putting on different uh, parts of your clothing, you put on a belt to hold it all together. And so, essentially, what Jesus is saying is, if I could put it in the vernacular, is Peter, when you were a young man, you used to hitch up your belt and do whatever you wanted. And you can see that in Peter. And Peter was the guy, you know, early in life, he would have said, Come on, lads, let's go catch some fish. You, you, when you were young, you did whatever you wanted. But when you were old, he says... You will stretch out your hands, and that is a euphemism used only in the first century for crucifixion. You will stretch out your hands, and another will bind you, gird you, and take you where you do not want to go. Well, we know that the Apostle Peter was crucified by the Emperor Nero in 65 AD during the Neronian persecution. And uh, it was a literal fulfillment of what Jesus told Peter. Imagine for 32, 33 years, the Apostle Peter had to live knowing that he would be crucified. It's interesting also that Jesus is saying something, it seems a little harsh to us, but something about Peter's brash, impetuous nature. When you were young, you did whatever you wanted, you had all the confidence in the world. You went out and you were a natural leader and you loved people and you did things and you had fun and you shot off your mouth all the time. But when you were old, you were going to die as a martyr in my service. And it's right after that he says, follow me. He repeats the words he said to him at the initiation of his discipleship. And can I just note one third thing, what follows afterwards? We apparently are invited to see this conversation taking place on a beach as the seven disciples sat with Jesus. And in front of them all, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me more than these? But at the end of the conversation, apparently, they stood up and began to walk. And we might picture the others trailing along behind Peter and Jesus as Peter begins to follow him, literally. And it says, verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper, and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Well, by the way, the disciple whom Jesus loved is code in the Gospel of John for John, the son of Zebedee, who is unnamed in the book, the only one of the apostles who is not named. And and Peter looks back, and remember, this young man, much younger than him, would have been his employee, because he was one of the sons of Zebedee, who was the partner of the Apostle Peter. And he looks back and he sees this one whom he loved and who he knew had a special relationship with Jesus. And he says to Jesus, what's going to happen to him? In other words, you've told me that I'm going to die a wretched death. What's going to happen to this man here? And Jesus says to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? That's the closest you'll ever get to the Gospels, to Jesus saying to someone, that's none of your business. That's none of your concern. What happens to him is not your concern. You follow me. The fact is, it became a concern because Jesus' enigmatic statement was uh, question much later, probably around the time this book was written, much later in the first century. All of the apostles died as martyrs, we're told. For some, we have the clear record of history, like the apostle Peter. For some, it is only church tradition, but they died in specific ways as martyrs to the cause of Christ, except the apostle John. He was the only one who lived into great old age towards the end of the first century, where he was like um, the shepherd of a number of churches in Turkey and around the region of Ephesus where the church in Ephesus was. That's where he spent the remainder of his days. And apparently people, knowing this saying, thought maybe it meant he would never die or that Jesus was going to return before the apostle John died. But John himself writes here, Jesus didn't say that. All he said was, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Like, it's none of your business, Peter, what I do with another one of the followers. You follow me. Now, the point is this. It's so interesting that at the end of his life, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he reasserts not only the commission given to Peter, but specifically the basic fact of his discipleship. That he was called to be a follower of Jesus. And you know what that means? What that means when you become a disciple of Jesus is it means you're owned by Jesus. For example, when a person is baptized, we make the basic confession, the scripture says at that point, Jesus Christ is Lord. That is, I intend to live my life under the direction of Jesus as my master, And from this point forward, the decisions, the choices that I make, are meant to be based on that confession that I made, the vow that's made in baptism. And then we live that out in specific ways. But that is the initiation of a life of discipleship. And you can be certain that a Christian who is baptized, if he or she wanders away from Jesus, will not wander away unhindered, they will be hindered by the Lord and chastised and dealt with in order to draw them back, bring them back to a place of faithfulness as we see Peter doing with Jesus doing with Peter here. So see, there's a note of firmness in Jesus' words. Discipleship ultimately means that you are owned by me. You're under my authority. You're under the direction of my will. It means that you set aside your own agenda in life in order to follow my, my agenda. And that's how we're invited to come to the table. We don't come just as forgiven children, though thank God we come that way, right? Thank God. That ought to be the first thought we have whenever we see it, the table. But that's not the only way we come. We come as people who are commissioned and gifted to do something in his service. We come as followers who are under orders, so to speak, disciples of a master, students of a teacher, servants of a Lord. We, we come as people who intend to follow Jesus, and he is taking that seriously in his leadership of our lives. In other words, we come as people who are forgiven and gifted and owned. Now, what does that mean? Well, it always starts with grace. In fact, any thought about the Christian life is founded on Grace. It's only by grace that you and I, if we are Christians, belong to God and we know that we are his children. In fact, it starts at some point in life with that internal sense that I have sinned and I need God's forgiveness. Not everyone has that, but at some point in life that is awakened inside of us. And uh, that happens by grace. might be when you're a child, if you have the... uh, fortune of growing up in a Christian home, or might happen as a teenager or an adult. Whenever it happens, it is grace by which a person begins to be awakened to this realization, I have sinned, and I need God's forgiveness. And then that, that begins to grow in an understanding that God has done something about our sin. And that also uh, is awakened by his grace. And then we grow in an understanding that Jesus has done something about our sin and a conviction that Jesus' death paid for our sin. And that also comes because of God's grace towards us as he works in our lives, and that leads to a confident reliance on Christ, a receiving Christ and resting on him for forgiveness to cleanse us and restore us, and that comes by grace also. So we are people who, first of all, when we come to the table, we have to recognize we are forgiven by the grace of God, by his mercy and his love and his willingness to do something for us we couldn't do for ourselves. But it also is accompanied, grace always is accompanied, by responsibility. God doesn't only forgive us and draw us to his table to be his children, but he, um, he also does it So that we understand we are in a position as his children sitting at his table to be trained by him, to be taught by him, to be raised by him. He wants to restore us and guide us and teach us and strengthen us and and use us to extend his kingdom to other people. And that's what he does in our lives. That's why we're commissioned to do something. We're not just forgiven so that we can sit and rejoice in that and, and grace and responsibility also lead us to submission because we come as disciples. We come as people who have acknowledged that we belong to the Lord. We are owned by him. And that basic confession, Jesus Christ is Lord, is what we are meant to live out in our lives. And the table reminds us of that. So we come as people who are forgiven and as people who are gifted and people who are owned. And that's how we want to come this morning to the Lord's table. Why don't we take a minute and uh, spend some time in personal reflection and take advantage of the foot-washing of Jesus and acknowledge that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's take a moment of reflection. Our gracious God and Father, Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, and through him, our Father as well. Thank you that you are the one who, through your only Son, has paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Thank you that you, as we come to you, not only have forgiven us, but you enable us to enjoy you in fellowship and to walk with you closely, and we pray that This will be even that time for us when we do that, or if we need to when we return to that. Thank you for the assurance that you give to us that when we come to you and we acknowledge to you our sins in the specific ways that we struggle with them, you forgive us and cleanse us. And you forgive not only those things which we come and bring to you, but you forgive us even of those uh, hidden faults in the deep recesses of our hearts that we don't even understand or see. And you make us fit to come to your table as your children and enjoy fellowship with you. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.